0: Hey everyone, this is Edie Talbert, your breast friend, and this is my podcast. Be sure to subscribe so we can get the new episodes to you each week. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, which is my favorite, and let's become breast friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am with Katie today. Katie um, is my niece as well, via marriage. Um, But she also, her son George, was diagnosed with liver cancer at the age of four months. So I've asked Katie to come onto the podcast today and talk a little bit about caregiving because that's an important part of cancer treatment. So I wanted to get her perspective as a caregiver. So Katie, your son George, my, my favorite little human who's not so little anymore, my hero, my superhero... He was four months old when you found out he had liver cancer. Tell me about that moment when you got that, when you got that diagnosis. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was
1: devastating. Um, it didn't come, it kind of came in pieces, uh, like the pediatrician or who was amazing and we're so grateful, um, recognized that there was something wrong, but he, he did not use the word cancer, um, and in fact, the way he described it, that really wasn't where our minds went. Um, but the next day, we went and were admitted. We didn't know we were on the cancer floor. Oh. Um, so again, it we were somewhat shielded from that word, and we got results pretty quickly. I mean, you, I've learned from other people and other people's stories that it can come much slower. Um, so within a couple days, we you had the official diagnosis. But honestly, when she came in and and used those words with us, we were pretty floored. Um, did not that's not where our minds were going. Now, there's so many other things that could have been that could have been just as bad or worse. But that was just the first time we really heard that, and it was overwhelming. Uh, not prepared for it at all, of course, and you. Definitely, just in that moment, feel like that. How this can't be us. This is the thing that can't happen to you, to me. So we didn't have a lot of time to wrestle with that. Really, you know, it was go go go. Start biopsy, surgery right away. Treatment transferred to another hospital. All that. Um, so some of the fallout of those emotions came over time but just the shock of it and just settling into that reality of what you're dealing with was overwhelming i would
0: say would be the best way to describe it yes so tell me tell me first how did you even know that there that there was something not right with george
1: right so Dub, my husband actually, had mentioned, had said one time when he was changing him, his tummy seems kind of hard, but he's our second baby, so overall worries were down compared to your first First baby. (laughs) You know, you're like, oh, everything's fine now. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just, baby's tummies get hard, you know, so I didn't think a ton about it, but it was in the back of my mind, and at his two-month checkup, the doctor said he's he's thriving, he's growing, he's eating great, everything's wonderful. But right around three months, he just started what I would call, what I called spitting up, but he was actually throwing up. It's very hard to tell the difference in babies. And mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. It was only getting breast milk at that time. Um, but I just started to feel like, and with, with, with what Deb had said, I started to feel kind of that check, that okay, I think there's something wrong. And of course, you know, mentioned it to mom and mother-in-law and other people and everyone's like, it's fine, babies do weird things, you know. Um, But that's why we took him in a little bit early for that four-month checkup. I just thought, you know, I just want to get him in as soon as I can to have this looked at. And really, as I was describing it to my pediatrician, he was kind of same lines as my other moms and and people. Maybe we need to try a different, Maybe we need to try formula. Maybe, formula. you know, mm-hmm. just talking about it, it didn't seem that alarming. But when he touched him and started to feel that area, that was when he immediately could tell, no, there was something there for
0: sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember all that so well. So well. Yeah. Um, tell me about his treatment plan. You mentioned... um being moved to different hospital, talking about surgery, talking about treatment. Talk to me a little bit about how all that, what was first, what was second, what was third? How did it go? How did it go? Right. It was for
1: all the cancers that he could have had uh, at that time. This one, hepatoblastoma specifically, has a very specific protocol that's used by all the hospitals so there was never a like well let's maybe do this or it was just this is what we're doing which is probably good for me because to try to figure out with what the doctor is telling me is right or do i need to go trials and whatnot would have been so much more overwhelming Mm -hmm. they were like no this is what you do for this cancer period um But they mainly, the surgeons who did that surgery were in Oklahoma City. So we were in Tulsa at St. Francis, which at the time was not the St. Jude affiliate that it is now. Mm -hmm. Amazing team. They just did not do that surgery at that hospital. So they wanted us to start with the oncologist and the team um, at OU Children's Med in Oklahoma City right away to have them be our primary um, oncologist and all of that. So... We got the diagnosis, and then I think it was very early the next day that they transferred us by ambulance to Oklahoma City, um, admitted us, and the doctors right away told us this is what we're going to do. We're going to do the biopsy to make sure. We're 99.9% sure, but we're going to do the biopsy. Then we're going to start chemo. He was scheduled for six rounds of chemo. And they were hoping after the fourth round of chemo that it would be possible to do surgery. They, I mean they were like if we do two rounds and we can do it we will, but most likely it will be four. Um so we we saw my pediatrician on a Tuesday. Um had the diagnosis on a Thursday. His biopsy was that next Monday and he started chemo either Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week. So it was 7 to 8 days from pediatrician visit to starting treatment which If you have experience in the world of cancer, that's really unbelievable. Just such Mm -hmm. a miracle right there that we started that fast. Mm -hmm. Um, But that first surgery was really, really hard on his little body and very difficult for him to kind of get over that plus starting chemo right away. So that first month was just a major hit to his body and very, very difficult for us to just make it through. That was one of the scariest times started chemo, did some chemo in the hospital, went home, but was only home for a couple of days before he crashed. His numbers crashed, and we were admitted back to St. Francis. So for the emergency visits where his numbers would fall after chemo, and uh, he would be um, basically any fever, we'd have to go to the hospital. So that would that happened after every chemo round and it would happen in a couple of days. So we right back in the hospital, Um, but he just basically then had that monthly chemo for four rounds and then he had surgery. So that was June and he had surgery in October. So again, Mm -hmm. really a short amount of time that Mm -hmm. that all happened. Um, and in October they did the resection. We did find out, suddenly go back, when we first were admitted in Oklahoma City, they had to go through with us, okay, here's what happens if we can remove the tumor and then here's what happens if he has to have a transplant. So, in you know looking back, you realize how much you're taking in information-wise. It's it's crazy. Fortunately, he didn't have to have a transplant because that really would have just been a whole other, whole other situation, lifelong, different forward going forward type situation. Um, but the tumor responded well to the chemo the surgery in october they took out the tumor and half of his liver and then after that he just had two more rounds of chemo and then he was done and that was it so started in june last chemo in december and we were done
0: which you know and, you and so what was the what was the difference in i think i remember if he had to have a transplant if the t- the tumor was over the artery in the liver or something then that Yeah, would... the, the
1: hepatic vein runs through the middle of the liver mm-hmm. and if it mm-hmm. if the tumor wasn't uh, far enough away from that vein they wouldn't have been able to just take off the tumor
0: mm-hmm. and the,
1: mm-hmm. the half of the liver they'd have to just transplant the whole thing. Um so we were really fortunate that he didn't have to do that. Um made it made the whole thing much less time of his life and obviously much better odds for him lifelong.
0: Yeah. Uh, But he responded. And I want to, I want to give, I want to give accolades to your faith because when you would get, even though it was fast paced and even though it was from June to December, which is a very short amount of time in the, in the grand scheme of things, when you would get those, that information, because I mean, I even remember that, but that's where the things that we specifically prayed about you know, he has the tumor, we know he has the tumor, but now we need it not to be, and we need to be far enough away from that, that artery so that we can do the this surgery and not the transplant. And so I yeah. think that it was because of your strong faith and um, everybody around you, knowing that strong faith that you had and praying with you, I truly believe that was a miracle and an answer to God, to the prayers. So I just want to put that in there because it, I mean, that was the one thing that got me through was my faith. And so that's really important when you walk through something like this is your strong faith. So when was he declared cancer-free?
1: Uh, December 23rd, 2014 was his... I'm not going to forget it. Amen. It was blood work that we got taken, and we were there, and it was right before Christmas. And, mm-hmm. of course, all the doctors were getting ready to leave. I think it was a Friday, actually, and they were... It was so last minute for getting the results. She was like, well, either no today or a week from now." And I just thought, I cannot even uh-huh. handle that. Um, so we we did the blood work and um, stayed around. The, we were walking around the hospital halls. It was just me and and Dub and George when she called me, and it was just it was just one of those moments that you don't, you never forget. And it's just yeah, all. The emotions and the things that have been building up in every prayer and to hear mm-hmm. that number, his mm-hmm. the, the count that we had been following the whole time was called AFP, uh, some type of protein. And it started in the millions. Actually, mm-hmm. the doctor said it was so high in the first test that they couldn't even say what the number was. Mm-hmm. And normal is like eight to ten. So Mm -hmm. his was in the millions. Normal is like 8 to 10 or 8 to 12 or something like that. And uh, came back that day at 32. And I think before that, the lowest had been somewhere in the thousands. I I can't even remember. But when she said that was the number, I mean, we just just celebrated and called everybody and rang the bell and did all the things Mm -hmm. (laughs) that Friday before (laughs) Christmas. (laughs) It was was a great Christmas present. Never forget it. Yeah. So how old is George now and how is he doing? So he's nine, he'll be 10 in February and he's, he's doing awesome. He's doing so amazing. There's so many things about his life that have been answers to prayer. And sometimes it's, it just, it seems like a lifetime ago. It seems like it happened to other people almost, Mm -hmm. Um, but it still keeps us grounded. You know, there's days where I just, I mean, any mom will know you get frustrated with your kids, but there's, there's moments where I just look at him and realize, you know, like, it's a miracle. He's a yeah. miracle. I mean, afterward, he didn't, there was so much that happened in that time. So he didn't even walk till he was 18 months. I mean, developmentally, nothing happened in that, you know, mm. for most babies, critical time period, walking, talking, none of that happened. Um, so there was a lot of physical therapy that we did afterward. And I just, you know, I mean, I could go back, I'm sure, and find prayer journals where I just wrote down, like, I want him to be strong. I want him Mm -hmm. to be coordinated. I want him to be able to read well. And, I mean, just every time something good happens in school or, you know, his sports, I mean, you would just would not know. You would not Mm -hmm. know that this happened to him. And I think that that in itself is an answer to prayer because he Overcame all those developmental things on top of having gone through the cancer. Yeah, and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to explain to him. I mean, he doesn't really remember mm-hmm. any of it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do talk to him about it so that he can carry that testimony
0: forward and have it mm-hmm. his whole life. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me now. Let's get to the not the nitty gritty because that's the nitty gritty. But tell me what it was like being a caregiver
1: it was trying in a lot of ways um it again feels like a lifetime ago and i can't even imagine going back to that lifestyle it changed every single thing about our lives um i had to quit my job because him and i would be in and out of the hospital just all the time you know and It's funny, I was just thinking about this the other day because I am like a planner. Like, if you want to have dinner with me, you know, I got to know in advance. My friends tease me about it. Um, Going on trips, like, I do not do things spur of the moment. But I had a suitcase packed, and he had a suitcase packed. And we would go through chemo. We'd come home, and he runs a fever. It doesn't matter if it's 3 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock at night, him and I getting in the car, driving to St. Francis, you know, getting checked in and staying a couple nights and sleeping on a couch and it that's your life you know it's like at any moment you might be back in the hospital and then just Mm -hmm. all the nights in hospital rooms and when he had a surgery I stayed at the ICU with him which if you've been to an ICU they're not two person rooms I mean I had two chairs pushed together and um you know it's it's just so different. There's nothing, there's no normal day ever Mm -hmm. because you're home, you're poking and there's needles and there's checking temp, there's so many things about it. Um, And then we had another child that had Sally who was two and a half when he was born. Um, So she turned three right after his surgery actually. And I mean, The way that family jumped in and helped with her, but her and I, our relationship was just, I would say, minimal for that time. You know, Mm -hmm. I, of course, spent most of my time worrying about him with him. I would be in the, you know, have to run off to the hospital any moment. And so, you know, Dub and her, and it was just so, he was great with her. You guys helped with her. My mom, Onita, all of it, everybody helped with her so much. But there was that strain too, emotionally. Like we had, we were not really super connected during that time. And then when she would come to the hospital, you know, my my focus was not on her, mm-hmm. and that was just another layer of difficulty. And then there's the the financial strain. You know, I've quit my job, and your expenses just went way up. <laughs> like everything about your life costs. Every day costs so much money, and it's you can't even believe how much money all this costs. And how is that all going to get taken care of? Um, So if I wasn't sleeping in a hospital room or, you know, physically caring for him at any moment, I was on the phone with insurance companies or, you know, scheduling things or dealing with things and trying to figure out just every day was like a new plan. So Mm -hmm. it's it's exhausting, but it's but. Again, I I knew other people, saw other families um, going through just as much, but for years, Mm -hmm. for years, you know, with less good news and, Mm -hmm. and bad, just bad news upon bad news. So even though it was exhausting and difficult, I still always had that realization of like, okay, it's going in the right direction. This is, our plan is working, not our plan, but. God's plan and and the doctors and all that so there was um those bright moments that helped me keep moving forward and it just felt like it was my job it was my new job so I took that seriously and just tried to be as good at it as
0: I could be good that's so good did you were you talked about having to quit your job were there any other changes that you had to make in order to be George's I mean he's an infant he can't he can't advocate for himself um it's it's not it's different than having an adult going being an adult going through cancer what are the things that you have to change um in order to be the best caregiver for George anything else that you can think of I think just
1: uh, and I'm not I wouldn't say I'm, I'm' I don't shy away from confrontation anyway I mean my personality is is I wasn't afraid to ask the questions but just just to like you said be that advocate and mm-hmm. um be pushy you know i mean i'm mm-hmm. i can be conversational but i don't know that i'm necessarily pushy but you 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 are you're pushy a little bit um just overprotective and mm-hmm. um but also then the flexibility was a big mm-hmm. thing for me you know just kind of having to throw everything every plan out the window and uh, you know we could never go anywhere we couldn't go to church, couldn't take him anywhere. So we were at home all the either home or the hospital was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then also just having to say yes, when people offered help, you know, I would I would be like, yes, normally that would not be my thing like, no, don't watch my kid for me. That's my responsibility I was like, yes, take her somebody take Sally to do something um, mm-hmm. so she can get out of the house and, you know, yeah. missing missing things. Halloween came and went, and you know, sent her off with other people, and and just because we were in the hospital. So, just being able to change your perspective on some things. Um, and I think that stays with you too. And even to this day, I'm I am grateful that when different things happen, I mean, I can lose it and freak out like anybody, I'm sure, but. It keeps you grounded because you you know that what you're experiencing whatever the trial or struggle is um it's not that and if it's not that it's more manageable if it's not that i can i can get through you know just being that kind of starting each day knowing we aren't dealing with that and how grateful i am that we're not
0: yeah yeah that's good so good What's the best advice that you feel like? I mean, you've given us lots of good information here. What's the best advice that you feel like that you could give other caregivers? Whether it's it's a mom for their child, whether it's a um, husband for a wife, from your experience, what would be the best advice that you could give them? I mean, I could I could I could superimpose so many things that you said, but go ahead. <laughs> Yeah.
1: I mean, on the practical side, um, Mm -hmm. on the practical side, I would say be aggressive for the Mm -hmm. person that you're helping, for the person you're caring for. Be aggressive for them. Mm -hmm. Be aggressive for yourself. Be assertive. Ask all the questions. I had kind of a challenge for myself that no doctor would ever come in to his room and I would not ask some questions. I mean, I had kept the, my little spiral notebook, and I would sit there and think and think and think. Is there anything I need to know? And it was so helpful. I, I, I really—I none of the doctors ever got irritated with me. I thought they might. They really didn't. Um, and it—and I—you can't be in control. So I'm not saying try to be in control of a situation you can't control, but do what you can to to help yourself just have the best possible understanding because the doctors brains are going a million miles a minute and they've got so many other patients to think about and when mm-hmm. they say things a lot of times they just they assume that you either trust them or that you understand or that you have any idea what they even mean um they're doing their job but you're going to be one of so many they see that day. So I would just say, ask as many questions as you can. Be the advocate. Make the phone calls. um, You know, don't shy away from that because it will help you to have more peace through the process when you know as much as you possibly can. And I didn't like, I'm not saying I was on the internet like researching. I wasn't. I was just asking questions of the people caring for George. That was my main thing. The nurses and the
0: doctors. And I think, I think you hit a pivotal point is that you kept a spiral notebook and you wrote those questions down because you didn't want to recall those by memory because you would ask one and then you'd forget what else you wanted to ask based on that answer. So it's so important to write those things down and carry it with you everywhere you go. That's the number one thing that goes in your bag or your suitcase or whatever it is to appointments, to hospital stays, whatever it is, you keep that notebook with you at all times. So that you can ask those questions because there are times when you're home and you think of a question, but by the time you go to the doctor, you forgot that question until three days later when you think of it again. Oh yeah. So it was very important to write those things down. So I think that's, that's a good key po- point. Um, keep your, keep your notebook with you and write those things down. That's good.
1: And on that's the, good. on the less practical side, it still mm-hmm. comes to writing and I'm not a journaler. I do not journal I always have wanted to. You don't? I turn I thought you did. I write down oh. my I write down my prayers. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay. Um, but I don't journal like events, you know. Yeah. Um, but I did. I forced yeah. myself to journal what happened with George. And I'm so glad that I did. Because there's so much that I don't remember. I mean, I should have read over it right before we talked, but I I mean oh. I, I I journaled, ri- a written journal, and then after I after it was all said and done, um I just kept feeling like I needed to write like I was writing to someone who was going to go through the same thing. So Ooh. I I did this online journal and I wrote a ton. And I've gone back and read that and just it blows my mind. I'm like, I don't remember having those thoughts. <laughs> you know, um Things about how it changed, affected my relationship with my husband, things how it affected my relationship with my daughter, you know, just things how it changed my relationship with with God and the hard questions I had for God when it happened and after it happens. I mean, probably anyone who knows me well would tell you that I had more sadness and I wouldn't call it depression but something like that after Ooh. he was better than i yeah. had while it was happening yeah because what when it's happening you have this purpose driving you every single day and then when it's over mm-hmm. you sit there and you think um and you're still exposed to the the community of people going through it and it was just really difficult to deal with some of the Questions And then to see, you know, there was ha- had been other families going through that lost their kids. Mm-hmm. George got mm-hmm. better and then other kids didn't. And that was really difficult for me to deal with. Um, yeah. Not because I felt guilty that he had gotten better. I just just so many what ifs and so yeah. many whys. Um, mm-hmm. So in that in that way, journaling journaling helped me. And then, I mean, just I'm sure it's so cliche, but just try to make as many good moments as you can when you're going through it for yourself, for the person you're caring for, for other children in your life, for other Mm -hmm. people in your life, Um, you know, do as much as you can to not completely lose yourself and your life to that process, which is a big task. That's so good. But I appreciate it. Say that again. Say that again. To to just try not to completely lose your the rest of your life
0: mm-hmm.
1: to this process. To and this I process. It's appreciated just appreciated. You guys and our family and the people who came to the hospital and said, "You guys get out of here." Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one time you and Ronnie came, and me and Sally went to like old Navy. I don't even know. <laughs> right? Like, just get out of here. Or, I mean, just whatever it can be, you know, mm-hmm. have church online in the hospital room, just anything you can do because you mm-hmm. could lose yourself. Mm-hmm. And it, for like I said, for us, it was a short amount of time. I, I don't know if it had been years long process. I, I even though I went through that, I still don't understand sometimes how people go through it when it's a much longer process because the
0: rest of the world can just fade away. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So good. So when we launched the Stonebrook project in November of 17, I asked you to be on the board of directors because of what you had been through. And I felt like you'd be a good fit. Your first position was vice president and then you moved into the president position. What, With your experience with George, what was it like to serve on the board where we were serving other people that were walking through cancer? What was that like?
1: You know, at first it was kind of hard because it's, um, you have moved on a little bit Mm -hmm. and then to kind of be confronted with new stories. Every new story feels a little bit overwhelming and hard. Mm Mm-hmm. And that can be difficult to um just face. This brings up everything back mm-hmm. and and I think that's it, like every situation, every person's diagnosis is is scary and it's overwhelming and you can sense in them that that it's not supposed to happen to me, you know, and then after being involved for a little while, your perspective is just so changed. I mean, then it feels like everybody you know has cancer. I mean, because it's just so many, so many lives. I mean, I think of board meetings where we would be sitting around and of course everybody on the board was touched by cancer, but just not even that. Then people on our board being diagnosed with cancer, you know, after being apart. It's, Mm -hmm. and it's, um it's rewarding, and it's you feel like okay, we're doing something for these people, and and making it better. And it's also hard yeah. to be faced time and time with the loss over okay. and over again. Um, yeah, which I'm sure is very common in you know oncology doctors, oncology nurses, anyone right. involved in this world. Right, you're just faced with loss on such a regular basis. Um, so it, the rewarding part outweighs it because you you get to hear all the great stories and see the community and hear how people are being helped and, and hear how people are keeping their lives. Like I was saying, don't lose yourself. And the Stoneberg mm-hmm. Project helps people to just not completely lose themselves to the disease.
0: Yeah, yeah. Such good stuff. I think you kind of answered the next question. What kind of impact did the project have on you? And I think you kind of went over that. Um, If you could, if you could share with one person in the audience about the stonework project, what would that one thing be?
1: I mean, I think it would be that, that thing that it's not even about any of the, the, what's not about one service that we offer. It's not about the oncology massage that you might get or the way your family might be assisted with a financial need or the encouragement that you're going to get in the community cancer group. It's just being connected to something that is life outside of your disease. And when it's with people who know what you're going through, we all are looking for the same thing. We're all looking to have as much life as we can while we're here and and while we have it. And it's, I don't even, I'm not going to be able to put it into words, but you're in a room with people. I mean, I've been to the community cancer group and you're in a room with people and you know that this person or that person, the person you're talking to, you you know that, that their prognosis isn't good. And they're encouraging the person next to them, you know? Yeah. And you know that this person is caring for someone who's, it's not going well, but but they're being encouraged by someone. And there's there's life happening there. Um, and sometimes, even though you want life outside of the, the disease, sometimes you can only get that from other people who know what you're going through. Because mm-hmm. it can be hard to... um share all of this with people who don't have any context and don't have any perspective on it you know it's like Mm -hmm. do i talk about it do i not talk about it do they really want to know i mean Mm -hmm. not that people don't care but when you're talking to people who know what you're going through um and you're in that together there's there's life in it but there's also um comfort in it Mm -hmm. and knowing that that everybody's kind of on the same on the same page and there for the same reason. Um, And then working with the people at the spa, you know, just having so many cheerleaders, so many people who want you to get better, so many people who care to know what's going on, so many people that um, want to be a part of that and are going to celebrate with you or cry with you, whatever it is that you need, um, is, I think,
0: what the Stonebird Project is all about. Oh, good. Couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> all right. So that's all my questions. Can you think of anything else that comes to mind that you would want to share with our audience about caregiving?
1: I, I think just lean on people as much as as you have. And some pe- some of us have more people than others. So if mm-hmm. the Stonebrook Project is your people to lean on, then lean on, on mm-hmm. those people. Um yeah. And if you have others in your life, you know, let them do for you yeah. what you can't do for yourself. And and be okay with that because someday it'll be your turn to do for someone else what they can't do. Um, and just being as grateful as you can um, for the miracles that happen along the way. You know, and I... I feel like it's easier for me to say this because we got what we prayed for with George. Um, But I think that God gives everybody the grace that they need for whatever the path is and whatever the situation and try to see and recognize those miracles. You know, look for the small prayers that are answered, pray specific prayers so that you can see them get answered, you know, and that's always, I I know you helped me with that. Um, It wasn't, Pray that George gets better. It was pray for this test result and this this um, scan (laughs) result and this surgery specific thing um, so that when those prayers get answered, you can write them down and say this prayer was answered because it can be very easy to sink into the uh, why me and the, you know, well, this is not health. My child is not healthy. My child has cancer. It can be so easy to sink into just the bad and to not see along the way how God is providing, how God is intervening, how God is walking with you. You have to look for it sometimes. And when you do, it helps you take the next step. It helps you wake up the next day. It helps you pray the next prayer. And it helps you after to do for others. Because, um, you know, I worked on the prayer team for a long time at church after and I just felt like people would come in and they have such big stories and it it is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But I had that experience that helped me be like, okay, but what's happening next time you see the doctor or, you know, what is the very next step? Let's just pray about that. And it makes everything seem less big and difficult and overwhelming for people and did for me. Um, But you have to, you have to actively seek out or actively try to recognize those moments and those answered prayers.
0: Yeah. And I think that's so important. It's, it's, it's seeing the smaller things within the bigger thing. And that does truly give you momentum. It gives you hope. It gives you encouragement. And that's why we need to see those smaller things. Because like you said, then you get up the next day and you start all over, but you've got motivation, you've got momentum. And so that's, that's how you keep that going. So that's very good. Very good. All right. Anything else that you can think of? I don't think so. Katie, as always, you never cease to amaze me. Um, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful that you were George's mom, um, because I I truly feel like you were, the one consistent thing that, um, was able to take care of him and, 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 um, couldn't have done it any better. So, um, and I learned something every time we talk, when we talk about little George, he's not so little anymore, but I learned something each and every, (laughs) yeah, something new and different every time when we talk about, um, what you went through with George. And I just want to say this, I just want to plant a seed. Um, with all those online journaling and journals, you might ought to think about writing a little book of some kind to help others. Just just saying. But anyways, I'm it's going to play with that seed. A lot could be added. You know, the story's not over. His story is <laughs> not right. over. That's right. And we've always said that from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, he's going to have a magnificent story and he will. So thank you so much. I appreciate you joining yeah. me on the podcast and we'll talk soon. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and if you did, make sure to share it and subscribe so you can receive all the new episodes as they are available. Also, I want to thank all of you that are supporters of the Stonebird Project. If you would like to be a project partner or make a donation, please click on the link in the show notes. Don't forget to leave us a review, share, and subscribe to your best friend. Have a great day.